Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Richard Rumelt is one of the world's most influential thinkers on strategy and management. McKinsey Quarterly described him as strategy's strategist and a giant in the field of strategy. He is the author of Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, reviewed by the Financial Times as the most interesting book of 2011 and by Strategy Plus Business as the year's best and most original addition to the strategy bookshelf. Richard received his doctorate degree from Harvard Business School and is the Harry and Elise Kunin Chair Emeritus at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. His new book, The Crux, goes on sale on May 3rd, 2022 from Public Affairs. He has introduced numerous strategy concepts that have shaped the dialogue of strategy. And in this podcast, he shares some of them with us and points to what's coming next. He covers why so many organizations practice bad strategy and how to spot bad strategy when you see it, why fundamentally strategy is about solving problems, the secret behind the strategies of SpaceX and other breakthrough companies, and why that rests on finding what he calls the crux of the problem, and specifically choosing a crux that others are not paying attention to and why we see so much vertical integration today and when that will change. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Rumelt. The first question I'm going to ask is, if you really know me, you know that. If you really know me, you know I'm an engineer, I'm a mountain climber, and I'm a skeptic. Interesting. So engineer, you started your career off as an engineer, right? Right. I studied electrical engineering at Berkeley, and my first real job was systems engineering at the Jet Propulsion Labs. I was actually the conceptual designer on what we had then was called the Jupiter mission, which became Voyager, which most people have heard of by now. And so that was my baby for a while. I've heard Jim Collins relate strategy to mountain climbing. I asked this question, if we shift to strategy, I asked this question of every person here, and many are experts in strategy and have never heard the same answer, but I know you thought a lot about this. What is your definition of strategy? Well, Ken, that's changed over the years. And my current definition is that it is a form of problem solving, that a strategy is a coherent mix of policies and actions designed to overcome a high-stakes challenge. If you had asked me this question 20 years ago, you would have gotten a different answer than 30 years ago. So originally, we were taught, we thought that strategy was a long-term commitment to a marketplace or a way of doing business. It almost had the idea of, if you ask, what's the strategy of a rabbit? Well, he has long ears and he burrows in the ground and he does this. There's design. And that took us places that I think turn out to be unproductive. And at some point, I began to realize, look, particularly working with companies, I began to realize that strategy is not a set of analytical tools, that the idea that it's a long-term commitment gets in the way of actually doing strategy. That real strategy is solving problems. It's pushing through challenges. It's surmounting the difficulty that you face. And this is hard. This is hard to accept. 
because we don't have a theory of problem solving. Do we have theories of problem solving in other domains, but not in business or just in general, we don't? Not anywhere. If you study science, if you study physics, they'll tell you, well, what the physicist does is create a hypothesis and then test it. That's what science is. Right. Now, where does the hypothesis come from? You make it up. And that's what strategy comes from. Strategy is a hypothesis about how to deal with a problem. And if you look at the science of problem solving, it's been going on for 30 years. And academics study how people solve problems, but they only study problems where they know the answer in advance. So they're really looking at puzzles, not problems. And Even more complicated than that, they're looking at situations where you can comprehend what the problem is. No, in a business situation, we might have Bob and Alice and Humphrey all thinking about a problem, and one of them is a finance expert, and one of them is a marketing expert, and the third is a legal expert. And they've got to combine their expertise, some of which is gained over 20 years, into some kind of solution. Nobody studies how that is done or how you should do it. It's just too hard. But that's the real strategy problem. The real strategy problem is that. Human interdynamics, I guess, is a realm that is understudied in strategy setting. Yeah, I first cottoned onto that hard in 2005. I was interviewing Donald Rumsfeld, who was at that point trying to deal with an insurgency in the Iraq war. And my interview was really not about strategy. It was about something about Defense Department budgeting. He then asked me, what do you do? And I said, well, I do strategy. And he said, well, we do strategy here at the Department of Defense. And he said, you know, my problem is I have experts that know almost anything you want to know. Do you want to know why Turkey blocked us in the north? I've got guys that know that. Do you want to know about how many sorties we can fly in 24 hours? I've got guys that know that. You want to know about the family structures of people in northern Iraq? We got guys that know that. He says, well, anything you want to know, there's expertise about it. All these people disagree. They all come with hidden agendas. They have budgets, careers, companies, academic notions. They all come with conflicting stuff, some of which you know and some of which is hidden. Professor Rimmelt, how do you combine all this into a strategy? And I was taken aback because he had just put a pin in our major ignorance. <laughs> I had to say, Secretary Rumsfeld, I mean, basically, we don't know any more about how to do that than the Egyptians did. You put 10 smart people in a room and see what they come up with. And so that's how I got really interested in that issue of creating strategy. How do you really do it? So I want to get to your new book, The Crux. You have, however, introduced multiple influential concepts that have shaped the dialogue of strategy. And so I'd like to just get people to appreciate your historical work. What are some of the ideas or concepts that you're most well known for? Okay, I'm well known for First, measuring the impact of diversification on corporate performance. That was early on. And at the time, it was assumed diversification led to superior performance. It wasn't really known. It was a mystery to economists why companies would diversify. Studying it, I mean, the two things popped out back there in the early 70s studying it, which was that the more diversified firms perform more poorly. And secondly, that the organizational structure in American industry had radically changed over 20 years, that this multi-divisional, multi-business form had become almost universal, even in companies that weren't very diversified. And that was interesting. I'm known for looking at the locus of profit in industry. The economist's view originally was that it's an industry phenomenon. 
that some industries are more profitable than others because some industries are more concentrated and they collude more and they set prices higher. Mm-hmm. So it's a healthier industry. You should position yourself in healthy industries. Yeah, yeah. And my work showed that, no, that's not true, that most of the variance in profitability is at the business level within an industry. Businesses are more variable within an industry than industries are from each other. And that stood the test of time. So being in the right industry matters less than being good at what's most important or success factors. To be more exact about it, being in a really bad industry is not good. So the whole Porter view of industry is correct for really bad industries. But above that level, industry doesn't matter as much as individual performance. And that kind of opened up this whole exploration of the resource-based view. That's right. And I did some work on what's called uncertain imitability. These are sort of founding ideas in our strategy field that I'm proud to have been a contributor to, partly just because I've been in it a long time. (laughs) So I got first crack at some of these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you're thinking ahead of others as well. You've been on the edge for a long time. Right now, I'm particularly well known for the bad strategy concept because of my book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. And I seem to have hit a sore point for literally thousands of people who've written me emails saying, oh my God, thank you for someone saying that this bump that corporate leadership's putting out is not a strategy. How do you recognize a bad strategy then? What's that look like? Well, bad strategy is of several forms. One form is just goals, just a bunch of things we wish would happen. You look at most of the stuff that government agencies put forward, and it's a list of 25 or 30 different things they wish would happen. Same thing with corporations. They'll say, well, our strategy is 15% profit and 15% growth rate. That's not a strategy. It's like a person saying, I want to be happy and rich. It's not a strategy. To be kind, you can say it's an ambition. A bad strategy is where it's just a bunch of, the old-fashioned word is bloviation. It's just a bunch of high-sounding sentiments and words. Bloviation, it comes from the 19th century, and it means a speaker or a speech who's wordy but isn't saying anything. So bad strategy is basically recognizable because it doesn't attack a central issue or problem or challenge. I mean, a strategy is a design for dealing with a challenge or a problem. Whether you're playing chess or it's the Russians in the Ukraine or it's a business, strategy means, the word means, a design, hopefully a clever design for dealing with a complex issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in your new book, The Crux, is that what you're pointing to as identifying the problem when you say the crux? Yes. The word crux, as I use it, comes from climbing. In a mountain climb, the crux pitch is the hardest pitch. The crux move in a climb is the hardest move. It's the place that's the trickiest. And the crux, the introduction of my book explains this. There are boulders outside of INSEAD in Fontainebleau. And I was a professor at INSEAD for a while. And watching climbers and talking with climbers, I asked some French climbers from the south who live near the Alps. And I said, why do you come up here all the way to Fontainebleau to these boulders? You live right next to the Alps. And they said, well, we like to practice these hard moves. We want to be able to handle the crux. And the climber said, I like to climb mountains in the Alps where I know I can handle the crux, but where it's a challenge. What he's saying clicked with me. He's saying, I tackle the most interesting climb where I can handle the crux. 
And I began to use this term. I stole the term sort of, and I transported. It's called displacement. I displaced the term over to business because the effective leaders that I have observed do this. They look at the situation they're facing and they figure out which of the problems or challenges they have are the most important, not the most interesting. Okay, the climber was interested in interesting, but we're interested in the most important, the most critical challenge that we can actually deal with, where we can handle the crux. And then we focus on that. We don't try to do 12 different things. We focus on that. And so the crux is this mixture, this combination of three strategic skills. One is figuring out what's critical, constraining what's critical to what's addressable, and focusing energy on that. Now, that's a formula not for strategy, because strategy in the end is an inventive design, but it's a formula for how we think about what we're doing when we do strategy. Can you give us an example? I know in your book, you mentioned a few companies that we might relate to. Is there an example that you can offer to illustrate the crux? The example in the introduction is Elon Musk, who has this ambition to populate Mars. And he wanted to put a rocket with a payload, a little payload maybe, going to Mars, just as an illustration. And he wanted to buy a rocket to do that. And Musk is an engineer. He made his original money with PayPal. Now he's doing all sorts of interesting things, all of them with an engineering bent. He went to Russia to buy a rocket. And as he negotiated with them, they kept increasing the price (laughs) until it was triple the original and he got disgusted in the left. But he began to think to himself, well, why is it so expensive to put something in orbit? Why does it cost so much? He looked at the history of that. He began to decide, well, it's about reusability. The fact is that a rocket's a one-shot deal. The numbers are astounding. The space shuttle, which we closed down eventually, but it flew starting in 1981. The idea of the space shuttle was that it could put a pound in orbit for $500 or something like that. It would be much more expensive than air freight to Australia. It turned out that it was $28,000 a pound when we actually built the shuttle. And part of that is because we couldn't reuse it. And he began to think about that. And then he had an insight into the crux of the problem. The crux of the problem is reusability. And he had an insight into how to solve it. He had an insight which was, look, fuel is a lot cheaper than rocket. Rocket has to be engineered fuel we can produce. Why do we make a rocket with more fuel, a lot more fuel, and after it gets to orbit, it turns around and uses the rocket engine to slow itself as it comes back down to Earth and lands, just like in the old science fiction movies. All right. And that was SpaceX. That's how he started out doing that. He just focused on that engineering problem, simplified everything. You know, they used an Ethernet, they used standard machine tools, and he got the costs down under a thousand dollars a pound putting stuff in orbit using a falcon heavy it was an amazing engineering insight but it was also a strategic insight into how to solve a challenge the same thing happened with electric vehicles the same kind of thinking you know what is the problem here and i encourage businesses and leaders to do that to focus on the challenge what is the real challenge that we can deal with and do something about I work with the DOD on strategy, and it's embarrassing the documents they put forward for general consumption. National security strategy, the United States right now says that our security strategy is to make democracy stronger. (laughs) Mm -hmm. A goal. 
It's absurd. It's childish. Our national security challenge, our main one, is the web of energy dependency around the world. Okay, that's our national security challenge. Our national security challenge isn't cancer. It's probably that we need to put nuclear power in place at some point and have a scientific moon race to do it safely and effectively. It seems like there's almost like kind of a lemming mentality of people clustering around a problem, and maybe that's not the right side of the problem. And then the strategist comes in and says, hey, it points at a different part of the problem. Right. Certainly my work with companies nowadays is trying to get them to be challenge-oriented and to get their top people together to pool what they know about the challenge and how to deal with it. And then to take off the table all the peripheral stuff that they want to do so that they can focus on doing this. And to do that, we tend to look at strategy when I'm doing it with company as a relatively short-term jump. We're looking 18 months, two, three years ahead and, and saying, okay, this is a journey. Let's deal with the web of difficulties that we currently face and make some progress and then look at where we are and look at the next step. I have so many other questions for you, but I know we're reaching the top of our time with you. And I'm going to end by asking how people can find you and connect with you. But just to throw one out here, this kind of come out in the conversation, which is you talk about a resource-based view. You talked about Elon Musk being able to use kind of existing inputs to have the cost of the inputs lower. Also, Elon Musk and SpaceX, but also in Tesla, is very vertically integrated. We kind of see a, it seems like there's a general trend towards vertical integration. So I'm wondering if you had an opinion on that. It seems to touch on several things that you've about. Are we seeing a leaning towards more vertical integration? And is that true or not? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, we see vertical integration when we see excellence and competence, particularly in new things. Lots of really interesting innovations that happen, happen by combining things that weren't previously combined, both knowledge or physical ways of doing things. And when you do that, when you take the business of, let's say, slaughterhouses and refrigerator cars, two different technologies that came together in 1900, you wind up with an integrated company because they have to figure out how to make these things fit together. And you see that with Google, you see that with Apple, you see that with Musk. They're innovating and creating pockets of excellence where they're bringing together things, wheels that run at different speeds and they have to get them coordinated. And we saw that with Ford Motor Company back in 1930. They integrated totally. After 60 years of doing that, most of those operations become well-known. And instead of doing it yourself, you buy it from a supplier. And so there's a deintegration phase that happens when the world understands how to do those things. But when you first put them together, yes, you get integration. When our kind of standards or APIs or the coordination of these parts becomes kind of established, each of those parts can then be built, developed, provided by a different player. Open source, yes. It becomes open source. But when you're creating something new, you've got to go the integrated route. Brilliant insight. I hadn't thought of it that way. Again, I got so many other questions for you, but I know that we're reaching the top of our time with you. So how can people connect with you, learn from you? Of course, they should get your new book. Any other places that they can find you? Well, there's a website going up in the near future called thecruxbook.com. And that's a place to contact me and to read some things about the book and other things. And it connects through. I think I'll be starting a blog, but I don't know the name yet. But thecruxbook.com will have the links. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. I wish we had more of your time, but thanks for the work that you do and for taking some time to share it with us. Okay, hon, thank you for the podcast. 
Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers. Outthinkers.